0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome. We hope you heard our talk last week with Stephen J. Harper. He's always a pleasure to talk Trump with because he really is an expert on Donald Trump and all things Trump. We do have only nine months until the midterm elections in November of 2022, and we, I think, need to keep our finger on the pulse of what's happening. As mentioned on that program, we soon expect to have Greg Pallast back on and have Greg throw a few firebombs, which he's pretty good at doing. To keep things a little bit political for the start of today's program, I'm going to go to one of our favorite resources, the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader Series. In this case, their 30th anniversary book, had a little section in about politics, particularly politics of the Democratic Party, that I think eh, worth talking about. To quote from Uncle John, when John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign chairman, received an urgent email that said his account had been hacked and that he needed to change his password immediately, he figured it was a phishing scam. Just to be sure though, Podesta had an aide send the email to a tech-savvy staffer, we should probably put that in quotes, a quote, tech-savvy, unquote, staffer named Charles Delavan, who looked at it and wrote back, quote, this is a legitimate email, John needs to change his password immediately, end quote. When Podesta read the reply, he interpreted it to mean that it was okay for him to click the link provided in the email To change his password. But that's not what Delavan meant. He'd intended to type the word illegitimate, as in, this is an illegitimate email, meaning that Podesta should have deleted the email and then changed his password the normal way. What happened next has been widely cited as one of the fatal blows to Clinton's failed campaign. With another click, wrote the New York Times, a decade of emails that Mr. Podesta maintained in his Gmail account, a total of about 60,000 were unlocked for Russian hackers. Now, here at Radio Parallax, we don't know what happened to Charles Delavan, but knowing how the Democrats work, we, we speculate that he might still be working for them. We feel that had he worked for Radio Parallax, he might have been given a ride. And in that same book, we have some non-political issues, in this case, a quote, or a series of quotes, from the English poet Alexander Pope who I think it's fair to say had a way with words. And uh, there were four quotes I particularly liked, which I think I will now share with you. Said Alexander Pope, If a man's character is to be abused, there's nobody like a relative to do the business. Also said Alexander Pope, some old men, by continually praising the time of their youth, would almost persuade us that there were no fools in those days. But unluckily, they are left themselves for examples. Here's a good one. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing. So is a lot. And what I would call my personal favorite, with particular attention devoted to all of my vegan friends, said Pope, what some call health, if purchased by perpetual anxiety about diet, isn't much better than tedious disease. All right, and something we haven't done for a while is uh, get into the good, the bad, and the ugly. Let's do some of those. We will be referencing, in this case, the Good Week 4, Bad Week 4 selections of The Week magazine. And according to The Week, it was a good week a few weeks back for alleged high-tech solutions with the news that a Turkish dairy farmer says he's increased his cow's milk production by fitting them with virtual reality goggles designed to make the indoor animals believe they are grazing in a sunny summer pasture. Yes. According to Izet Kozak, the two cows he's experimented with so far went from producing 22 liters to 27 liters. He added the quality of the milk has improved and the animals are less stressed. And wouldn't you know it, about the same time there was another alleged high-tech solution which we would say, well, might be good. The word is that officials in Sunnyvale, California, have decided to test green lasers to drive away the thousands of crows that have filled the city's downtown with cawing and droppings. Said Mayor Larry Klein, the lasers are expensive, but it's far better than spending hundreds of dollars to spray wash the sidewalks every few weeks. We at Radio Parallax are skeptical that lasers will drive away crows, and they're intending to do a field trip in the not-too-distant future to Sunnyvale around sunset and see what we can learn for ourselves. And we might be taking along one of our green laser pointers just for the hell of it. Since we're running together a few Good Week items, let's add Good Week for Trumpism. A few weeks back, this is an item we probably should have brought up with Steve Harper. Apparently, Jason Mariner, a Republican candidate who lost a special congressional election in Florida 79 to 20 percent, then refused to concede the race. Mariner, in fact, then filed a lawsuit challenging the results and said, we'll have some stuff coming out. Well, maybe so. We're not sure it's going to be enough to swing 30% of the electorate, but we'll see. Let's cite a few things it was a bad week for recently. One of them would be Chamath Palihapitiya. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Actually, I don't give a damn whether I pronounced that correctly. He is the billionaire co-owner of the Golden State Warriors he defended the NBA's billion-dollar bonus relationship with China by saying, Nobody cares about what's happening to the Uyghurs, okay? Nice. Of course, to that we would add, We don't give a damn what happens to the Golden State Warriors. And by extension, Chamath himself. And this last couple of weeks were bad weeks for Whoopi Goldberg, who was suspended from ABC's The View, two weeks after the comedian said the Holocaust was not about race. Explaining the Jews and Nazis were, quote, two white groups of people, unquote, fighting each other. She did later apologize. As for an apology for her lack of talent, we'll still be waiting for that one, we think. It's a bad week for New England recently, which failed to receive even a mention in the retirement announcement of quarterback Tom Brady, who played twenty of his twenty-two seasons for the New England Patriots. Brady did thank the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, calling Tampa such a fun place to live. And it was a bad week a couple weeks back for making distinctions with the news that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell told reporters that if you look at the statistics, African-American voters are voting in just as high percentage as Americans. Anyway, it was an ugly week, we'd have to say, recently for America's damaged legal system with the news that a New York City man has filed a $6 billion class action suit against the New York Giants and the New York Jets. That's because they play their home games in New Jersey. Abdiel Suero claims that because the two NFL franchises have been sharing a stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey, since 1984, millions of New York football fans have suffered mental and emotional damage, including depression, sadness, Are melting away. And we have to say it was an ugly week recently for trying to work the bureaucracy with the news that two men in Carlow, Ireland, got arrested after they carried a dead man into the post office in an effort to collect his pension. Apparently one had inquired about collecting a third party's pension and was told the recipient had to be present. So he returned with a friend who helped him prop up pension recipient Prater Doyle in a chair. But the staff noticed that Doyle wasn't responsive. The pair then fled, leaving the body behind. They later told police Doyle was alive when they left the house. Said Carlo Mayor Ken Murnane, It's mind-boggling. It's like a Hitchcock movie. Reminds me of that humorous line from, I can't remember which author it was, but he'd written a book in defense of the kind of people that get injured in a house fire due to their smoking by saying, the bed was on fire when I got into it. And finally, it was an ugly week for labor-saving devices with the news that a Roomba robot vacuum cleaner escaped from a hotel in England and spent a full day at large in the outdoors. It was eventually located under a hedge. Hotel officials said the device is now back with the rest of its robot vacuum family. Anyway, geez, here's another quote I should have used on in our talk with, with Stephen Harper. A meme got sent out a while back that kind of tickled me. It said, it always cracks me up when the left is referred to as radical. Like the left is running around carrying assault rifles, denying science, and not accepting the results of an election. And here's a headline that got my attention. We talked on this program some weeks back about how apparently there are more wrinkles to how it is the process of evolution takes place. In years past, we've talked about ep- how epigenetics, the fact that certain proteins that turn genes off or on can be passed along and they're switched off or on position, meaning to some degree that what an organism experiences during its lifetime has an effect on subsequent generations. As you probably remember from high school biology, that was Lamarckian evolution, and it appears to have some merit. Wow. And we further complicated the picture by noting that apparently genes can slip from species to species, meaning it's not just natural selection that's influencing evolution, but When people talk about species transfer, they're usually talking about one bacterium to another, or perhaps one one celled organism to another, although it's now been learned that, yeah, one plant can share genes with others. What no one has seen up till now is that plants apparently can cross over from the plant kingdom to the animal kingdom and put genes into animals. According to New Scientist magazine, in an article by Jake Bueller. White flies appear to have taken the saying, you are what you eat, somewhat literally. New research suggests that these tiny herbivorous herbivorous insects have incorporated dozens of genes from plants into their own genome. This volume of genes jumping from plant to animal far exceeds what was previously known in insects and may lead to new ways to control this major pest of fruit and vegetable crops. When DNA is passed between separate branches in the tree of life, it's called horizontal gene transfer. It's mainly known to occur between different species of bacteria or between bacteria and eukaryotic organisms, those with cells containing membranes like you and me, also plants, also fungi. But in March of last year, researchers reported the first known case of plant-to-animal horizontal gene transfer in silverleaf whiteflies. I don't know. I I find this to be rather astonishing and um, look forward to seeing more research in this area. According to researchers, they found 50 different plant genes that the white flies had acquired in 24 independent transfer events. How they know it was 24, I'm not sure, but these guys are pretty smart. We await a more complete explanation of how this takes place. The fact that it does take place at all is pretty jaw-dropping. Anyway, on our last show, we made some passing mention to an article that appeared in the New York Times by Ezra Klein about how the Democratic Party is sleepwalking its way into catastrophe. This is worth mentioning again, I think. Klein cited David Shore, described as a 30-year-old data savant, who as an advisor to the Obama campaign famously predicted the 2012 popular vote to within a tenth of a percentage point. He's been terrifying Democratic donors and leaders in recent weeks with a nightmarish vision of their future. Not only are Democrats likely to lose the House and the Senate in next year's midterms, Shore warns, but it could also be a decade before the party again controls Congress thanks to the mass defection of working-class voters without college educations, both white and non-white, to the Republican Party. These voters are concentrated in rural, low-population states that the Senate notoriously overrepresents. meaning the Democrats could win 51% of the popular vote in 2024 and end up with 43 Senate seats. Says David Shore, President Biden and the Democrats' last best chance to avoid the abyss is to radically change how the party talks and acts and thinks over the next year. Rather than let young, white, college-educated progressives drive a culture war agenda on race, immigration, social justice, and identity politics, he says, Democrats should focus their messaging on worker-friendly, bread-and-butter policies such as child tax credits and lower prescription drug prices. These notions are producing some backlash from more liberal elements of the Democratic Party, Ellie Mistel in The Nation wrote that since whites without college educations are hostile to immigration and science, should Democrats embrace beating immigrants? Sounding off on this in Politico.com, Ian Ward said the Democrats' problem is one of class, not race. The party itself is dominated by privileged college kids who are far to the left of the median Democratic voter. The result? Asinine, politically toxic calls to, quote, defund the police, unquote. And end all border enforcement. Ross Dow thought in the New York Times said, don't forget birthing people and Latinx. These grad school coinages from the great awakening alarm real world mothers and Latinos and Latinas. Until ongoing demographic changes give them a majority, Democrats can buy crucial time with working class voters just by denouncing the excesses of the progressive clerisy. Until ongoing demographic changes gives them a majority, Democrats can buy crucial time with working-class voters just by denouncing the excesses of the progressives. Now, it is kind of interesting that woke in the last few months has become somewhat pejorative. And uh, we think it should be on this program. And I don't know how you could not think that when you run across an item like this, which we may have reported on the show before, but we need to report on it again. A few months back, Progressives in California got the state to adopt a law requiring large department stores to display toys and other kids' products in gender-neutral ways. The toy law, which doesn't take effect until 2024, mandates that stores with at least 500 employees display a reasonable selection of toys and other child care products in a gender-neutral section, regardless of where they've been traditionally marketed for either girls or boys democratic assemblyman evan lowe said he was inspired to author this crackpot bill after a staffer's young daughter asked her mother why some items at the store seemed off limits to her because she's a girl i mean what can you say to the item we reported on just about a year ago regarding the san francisco board of education how they voted six to one In February of last year, to rename 44 schools honoring Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, sitting California Senator Dianne Feinstein, and other prominent figures accusing them of racism or sexism, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison were all marked for removal for their ownership of slaves, while Abraham Lincoln, the the man who produced the Emancipation Proclamation, was faulted for his role in the execution of 38 Native Americans in the Dakota War in 1862. I don't know, in 1862 as the president, I'm pretty sure he wasn't pulling the trigger on any people out in the plains at that time. And wouldn't you know it, an elementary school that was named after Feinstein got included in this list because when she was mayor of San Francisco, a Confederate flag that was part of a display about City Hall got vandalized and she replaced it. Of course, I think we should note again, last year the school board, in its wisdom, was reportedly considering renaming one of the schools after Grateful Dead frontman Jerry Garcia. Now, in this program, the last thing we would want to advocate for is any sort of discrimination against the LGBT community, but it seems to us that's a far cry from efforts which have been underway in America and other advanced nations to step in and use puberty blockers when certain younger individuals are experiencing gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria, of course, is described as a psychological distress which people suffer when their biological sex doesn't match their gender identity. Apparently, there are now at least 50 clinics in the U.S. set up to treat young people with gender dysphoria. Back in 2007, there was one. The growing number of children being prescribed puberty blockers and hormone treatments has become a political issue, which it should. In March of last year, the Arkansas legislature banned such treatments for people under 18 as experimental And similar legislation has been introduced in 19 other Republican-controlled states. My personal opinion as a physician is the use of such drugs in teenagers is malpractice. And a sizable percentage of the population, I think, feels the same way. So the worrisome trend in this is that it's 19 other Republican-controlled states that are stepping up to say this is not a good idea. Because the fact of the matter is, there's an awful lot of middle-of-the-road people, Democrats, moderates, who feel the same way and are very uncomfortable with this sort of thing being pushed by extreme progressives. Now, an awful lot of times in this program, we would count ourselves among what would be considered extreme progressives. I think it's fair to say that voicing objections to this does not make you some sort of reactionary. Anyway, from a medical standpoint, we think it's highly reasonable to, to... have doubts about this treatment modality. And the worst part about all of this is to to even express some doubts is going to earn you a lot of flack from the left. The Economist notes that it is exceedingly rare for healthcare professionals in America to criticize or even question practices that have become prevalent in the medical treatment of gender dysphoric youth. They note that anyone who publishes dissents tends to get castigated. Back in 2018, Lisa Littman, a researcher, was hounded and lost her job as a consultant after coining the term rapid-onset gender dysphoria, ROGD, to describe the social contagion of trans identification among teens, mostly girls. But even advocates for the treatment have acknowledged the existence of this ROGD. A plastic surgeon who works on sex change operations admitted that there probably are people who are influenced by social contagion. The surgeon said, yeah, there's a little bit of, that's cool. Yeah, I want to kind of do that too. We talked in this program years ago about the bathroom wars that took place when Barack Obama was president. Remember when North Carolina passed a law that people who are biologically men couldn't use the ladies' room? And those on the left compared it to the civil rights movement? Well, all that controversy is still with us. Between 2016 and 2019, the University of Pennsylvania's men's swimming team featured Will Thomas, who was an average swimmer. But now, as a trans woman named Leah, he's competing on the women's team and has been smashing records at every turn, becoming the fastest, quote, female, unquote, swimmer in the nation. And I'm sorry if you objected my use of quotes there, but I'm sorry, I'm a biology major. You cannot biologically deny that Will Thomas, now known as Leah Thomas, has much larger muscles and other physical advantages because he went through puberty as a male. Of course, I guess if maybe he'd gotten some puberty blockers, it'd be a different story. Anyway, suffice it to say that, you know, if if the Democratic Party is going to embrace human rights from this perspective, they're going to run into some problems. Megan McArdle, writing in the Washington Post, said regarding the case of Leah Thomas, acceptance is one thing. But in sports, there's a sound biological reason for women to have their own competitions. Research has shown that going through puberty as a male gives competitors a 6 to 10% advantage in sports like swimming and track. That advantage makes Thomas, who was pretty good as a male swimmer, a superstar among women and maybe an Olympian. Andrew Sullivan, who has a Substack newsletter, said maximal inclusion of trans people in society should be a moral duty. But it's absurd to claim that people are transphobic bigots if they don't accept activist claims that sex and gender are purely subjective and malleable with no connection to biology. To believe biological gender differences exist is not hate, it's just sanity. Anyway, are we skating out into some thin ice when it comes to some political uh, opinions here? I, I don't think so. The thing is, my even bringing this up is going to make some of you kind of nervous because the woke people are going to jump all over you if you raise these issues. Anyway, let's let's close off with some musings about how it is we'd all like to see a better society, a more equitable society. It's become crystal clear in recent years that income disparities are increasing in America thanks to the fact that some uber-rich are getting uber-richer. A lot of folks of the Bernie Sanders mode think we should go in there and fix this by taxing them more, but Truth of the matter is, a lot of these folks are not getting an income. They're doing it all through stock manipulations, and then they borrow money against the value of their stock prices. These people are very clever. And writing about their cleverness is Peter S. Goodman, who has a new book titled Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. Said the economist, Peter Goodman's new book-length assault on the world's billionaire class vibrates with anger. The veteran economics reporter, now with the New York Times, argues that the mega-rich are destroying the world, while claiming that they are the best hope of saving it. He spotlights a handful of celebrated modern moguls to prove his point. The economists felt that his indictment was ultimately not altogether persuasive, but they confessed he had done his reporting on his targets, and the facts he re- revealed reveal and the facts he reports on reveal gymnastic feats of tax avoidance and sometimes a staggering lack of empathy for the less fortunate. Along the way, he also destroys the myth that everyone benefits when the richest get richer. Rupert Murdoch's Wall Street Journal was even a little more critical of the book. They note that the idea of a Davos man is a type that predates Peter Goodman. On the simplest level, the label refers to the type of billionaire who flies to the Swiss Alps each winter to attend the World Economic Forum and join other billionaires in chatting about global concerns. But Goodman's Davos man is worse. He's a shape-shifting bogeyman who'd be terrifying if he existed, according to the Wall Street Journal. Well, I, I got news for them. I mean, the guy does. These people do exist. The Wall Street Journal claimed that Goodman's critique is so relentless and one-sided that the reader can't help feeling a touch of sympathy for these masters of the universe. Well, maybe... In NPR.org, Michael Schaub said, well, except that the anger is warranted. Goodman devotes the book's second half to documenting how the ultra-rich used the COVID-19 pandemic to enrich themselves even more, including by securing enormous tax breaks and government payouts. He notes that the book isn't likely to change the minds of the most hardcore defenders of our current economic system, but it's not meant for them, It's for lay readers who may not realize how wide and dangerous the wealth gap has become. For them, they said this powerful, fiery book could well be an essential one. You may want to read this one. Anyway, Mr. Will is not about to let me end on that note. So I'm searching right now for my puppy rescued from well stories. And doggone, I can't find a single one. But I do still have my bathroom readers in in my left hand. And uh, therefore, I think I'll go to the chapter on Rodney Dangerfield. How can we resist a few quips from Rodney? Like, what a childhood I had. My parents sent me to a child psychiatrist. That kid didn't help me at all. I don't get no respect with my doctor. I told him I want a vasectomy. He said, with a face like mine, I don't need one. I tell you, I get no respect. I get in an elevator. The operator takes one look at me and says, basement. You know, my wife was afraid of the dark. Then she saw me naked. Now she's afraid of the light. And reportedly a quip that Rodney made before he entered an L.A. hospital for heart valve replacement surgery. If things go right, I'll be there about a week. If things don't go right, I'll be there about an hour and a half. And my all-time favorite Rodney Dangerfield line, my wife cut me down to two days of sex a month. I was lucky. A couple guys I know she cut out completely. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. we got plenty more. Stick around.